0: HAMMER OF THE STARS By Pete Garrett They came by night, so it was whispered, moving through the forest in the dark, leaving no traces. It was not known among those who rumoured in dim recesses of the city's kitchens how they had passed the sentries on the outer gate. Peridur Pavrouch heard the news from Saskia Whiteflower, quite early on the first morning while collecting his wrapped lunch of apples, black bread, and red smoked cheese from the cook's assistant. "'Isn't it exciting, Peridure? Haven't you heard? Strangers in the lower town, a whole caravan, travelling folk, and they say the weirdest, wildest men seen here for years and years!' The cook's assistant added to the news. "'Ladies, too, they say. Beautiful as anyone can imagine!' But heavily veiled. Them too! Though how the gossips know they are beautiful while they are veiled, I cannot guess. Ellen, Peridier's mother, entered as usual to ensure he left for the Academy on time, not forgetting his slate, chalk, lunch, or precious books. She must have overheard the conversation, for she stressed, Do not dally on the way, my dearest, to look at parades of idle foreign mountebanks. There are always strange men in the lower city, and it's better not to know them. Many a young scholar has been distracted from his hard and honourable career by adventurers, magicians, and slaves of forbidden gods. Peridure, though nearly eighteen and over six feet tall, knew better than to argue with such advice. Whiteflower, an orphan, but niece to the graf, seldom heeded warnings— "'Surely our city is guarded against spells by ancient protective charms?' "'It's the temple of Our Lady Verena which casts the mantle of safety over us,' Helen said. "'Even that only covers the upper city. "'The Academy is in the lower, with its temptations, "'so the initiates can learn to combat the forces of evil.' "'She turned to Peridure. "'Go straight there.' and be thankful you live here, with Uncle Reinhardt, in Wurtbad, with its academy, and what's left of your poor father's estate, you'd be lucky to learn your letters. Round the first corner, White flower popped out of a nook. Are you coming to see the strangers? I hear the Graf will speak to them within the hour, demanding to know their business. That'll be a spectacle not to be missed. Well, I, I should go straight to the academy. She did not as she often did, cast aspersions on the academy and the clerics. "'That's all right. I've found a new tunnel, a shortcut to the postern gate. You can do both.' Peridier nodded, and she led the way down to the wine-cellar. No one knew the underworld of Vertbad like his cousin Saskia Whiteflower. Noble-born, but not due to inherit anything, the ladies-in-waiting turned a blind eye when she ignored girls' lessons and trained with the squires, if they would have her, or spent hours by herself exploring dungeons and the tunnels. She had found a passage under the barrack block, but he thought it led only to more cellars, no faster way out. Here! He knew the narrow gap through which she darted. It took them out of the storage area into a long, gloomy tunnel. In the lamplight— he could see the stonework change, slabs larger but more regular than above, arching massively over their heads. Folks said the whole upper city was built on the foundation of these colossal ruins. They had been abandoned long before the Graf's ancestors fortified the hilltop, so no one could say what men had built them, if men they were. They hurried down a passage. It had once been the aisle of a gigantic hall. To one side the arches were filled with regular blocks, but on the other they were piled in more confusion. Perhaps the upper stories of the palace had simply collapsed into the middle of the hall, but possibly they had been smashed there by some inconceivable force. The aisle swung sharply to the left. After a short distance she stopped and started examining the outer wall, he had time to observe intricate carving on the squared stones. White Flower ran her hands along a design, then pushed hard. A large section, several apparent slabs, swung back. It released a gush of cold and murky air, flickering the light alarmingly. I guessed from the old tales there might be a passage here. Look! She pointed across the aisle to a larger-than-usual arch, almost filled not with rubble, but with a marble dais, on top of which they could see the back of an enormous throne. Whoever ruled here in those days needed a private escape route. She showed him how to operate the secret door. Then, on down a flight of shallow steps, she took them fast and sure, the light bouncing with the rhythm of her stride, casting its shadows in a wild procession across the mysterious walls like clouds racing over the great moon in a high wind. They caught glimpses of carvings or murals, strange, handsome beings who were not quite men and women, but had no time to examine them. Saskia Whiteflower had other things on her mind. Why does your mother stop you doing so many things. She makes you spend so long in the school you have no time to train properly with the squires, though you're the best of the lot, and you've no chance of any adventures. I'm not really supposed to be a squire at all. You see, my father was a freelance knight. Sometimes he'd act as judicial champion for adventurers in trouble. That's how he came to be killed." He never made much money and sold some of the little land he had. So we're almost poor relations here. I see. My stepfather won't let you be a proper squire. No, no. Mother vowed when my father died that I wouldn't lead that kind of life. She wants me to be a scholar. It's Uncle Renhard who insists he won't have a boy in his household who doesn't have a chance to train as a squire. Oh, she sniffed angrily. He's never insisted I be given a chance. I have to train sneakily. Peridure was about to reply that girls seldom did do squire's training when they came to the bottom of the steps. The way was blocked by masses of mortared stones, great old ones, their carvings clashing wildly, interspersed with smaller modern blocks. The face was not quite sheer. There were little ledges above the courses, as though they were very steep steps. "'I'd better lead the way. Here, you hold the lamp.' She hoisted her black satin skirt with its pale lily flowers, and tied it carefully in a knot at her waist, then started nimbly upward. He had time to think that she was really almost as useful as a boy— she wore men's hose, very tight, and he noted, though, that she was not tall, her legs were as muscular as those of any youth, and in some subtle way far more pleasing to look on. Hold the lamp up! There! She pushed something, and a door slid open. Pereire blinked as daylight flooded in, and he took longer than she had clambering up. White Flower untied her skirt and led the way out. They were in a corner between the city wall and the buttress by the Postern, having scrambled up the great wall's foundation. They had saved a few minutes, but anticipation hurried them through the lower city towards the market square. The crowds were large for the hour, all heading in that direction. The upper city was built on a curved hill, like a crescent moon. The outer wall ran between the two horns. The lower city was on the inner slopes. Its streets stepped down to the market. The sun was already above the eastern arm of the hill, bright in a pale blue sky, misted with translucent clouds. As they scurried down from the gate, its rise reversed. Buildings eclipsed it more and more often. Turrets and minarets thrust weirdly into the sky with none of the regularity of the upper city, which could have been in any part of the Empire. Here travellers and dealers in strange goods from Kislev, the border princedoms, and beyond had recreated their distant, exotic homes with no order or plan, a place where the spiced aroma of enticing foreign foods mingled with the incense of strange temples and the odd scent of unknowable goods in small and evil-looking shops, where they sensed the gaze of bleak little eyes from every shuttered window, or dark uninviting door. The steeply stepped streets around the market formed a theatre, which was already crowded, but they knew a narrow passage beside the bookseller's shop, which led to a balcony he let them use. No stalls had been set up in the marketplace, the traders hung round the edge, looking with curiosity, resentment and fear at the group which dominated the square. Rumour was right. No such party had passed this way in their time. The strange men were every sort you could imagine, colourful in dress, often with some plate or male armour, though few wore the full suits which were the uniform among the Graf's guards. They did not resemble an army, with no appearance of discipline or drill, though they were drawn up in a kind of formation, close around their wagons and had the look of men used to working together. Peridur could have filled a book with the appearance of this outlandish crew, had his eyes not fixed on the leader, as huge a man as he had ever seen, human in aspect, though with an air of something savage, wolf, or ape, or bear. His black hair was not long, but curled wildly and almost matted, as did his beard. He wore a double coat of mail with some heavy plates attached, but no helmet. His coif was thrown casually back. He led a steed which increased the fierceness of his look. This was no charger, but a gigantic boar, high at the shoulder as a stallion, such a beast as wild hordes ride who are not men. Its tusks were as large and hacked as swords, and the warrior had a bigger one yet as handle to his massive battle-hammer, shaft and iron-head alike inscribed with runes. The man had a vast power about him, though whether for good or evil was hard to tell. Beside him stood a man powerful as he, but shorter. His beard was long, and he wore a doublet of rough cloth, no mail, He had a kindlier expression than his companion, carried a heavy staff that did not have to be a weapon, and led a horse which, though very large and shaggy, was still a horse. Behind this formidable duo was the strangest sight yet, a wicker chariot, light and graceful beside the gaudy wagons, drawn by six greyhounds. These were Bigger and sturdier than dogs bred for racing, but had a look of swiftness and grace no word can better describe. Two were pure white, two almost black, and two of both colours, exactly half and half. The car had an awning, black, grey, and white, from which hung veils of ephemeral silk, behind which two figures could just be seen. No details could be made out, but their presence alone had beauty. A trumpet sounded from above. The main gate of the upper city had a huge barbican which extended down the hill like an arrow knocked to a bow. Graf Manfred appeared on the battlement, splendid in his scarlet cape and hat, with a squad of his men. Peredur's Uncle Renhart was in command, and most carried loaded crossbows. There were other archers on the walls above. The Graf spoke sternly. "'Who are you? Strangers who have passed our outer gate by what enchantment I cannot guess. What business have you? If you are not our enemies, your words had better be convincing.' The big barbarian was the spokesman. His voice was loud, surprisingly cultured, with but a trace of accent. "'Lord Count, we are not enemies. We keep the lore of civilized lands, and seek only to help those we visit. Nor do we come empty-handed. We can trade, or entertain, and are men of many skills. If any of your folk are hardy and honorable, seek noble adventures and have something to offer.' "'We will welcome them to join us.' Graf Manfred still looked suspicious. "'So, you seek to recruit from our citizens, "'or is it to kidnap them, "'to trade, or is it to steal, "'to entertain, or is it to bewitch? "'You do not even give us your names, "'the land of your birth, "'or the purpose for which you travel "'in this extraordinary caravan. "'The Giant.' hung his head slightly, as though his appearance was so impressive that he had no need to act savagely. The shorter man beside him now spoke up. "'We are of many countries, most of them distant. I am known among our fellowship as Knuff the Stout. This is my kinsman, Undru the Strong.' Among our own nation it is not required of a guest or stranger to give one's born name. There are those who would abuse the knowing of it. You are not yet guests, the graf seemed little mollified. The huge cousin spoke again. It must seem strange that so much about us is veiled in mystery. We are law-keepers, with a mission of great benefit to all civilized folk. "'I can tell by my runes, by the smell of your air, "'that this city is not in the thrall to the cults of darkness. "'Yet evil has its tendrils everywhere. "'There are those who would promise much to know the object of our quest, "'and their spies cannot always be recognized. "'The Graf whispered with Renhard, then replied, "'So, you will tell us nothing of yourselves?' "'False names, precious little else. "'Anyone can claim a noble quest and powerful enemies. "'You are so many. "'I would call you a small army if you wore livery.' "'There was a rattle of movement above. "'A bombard was trundled onto one of the large bastions. "'A bolt catapult appeared on another. "'Peridieu tried to place himself protectively in front of Whiteflower, "'but she pushed past him again. "'The huge Ndru, was losing patience. His hands tightened on the carved ivory shaft of his mighty hammer. Peridieu wondered if he would try to batter down the great gate single-handed. Given time, he surely could have. But the soldiers above were raising their crossbows. Now the cousin, Canuth, whispered frantically in his leader's ear, and one of the mysterious figures in the chariot sprang to her feet, so that conveyance rocked wildly for a second. The giant returned with effort to his humbler mood. He drew a mighty breath and said, Great Count, I swear that I and my companions mean you and your people no harm. Indeed, great good will come to you when we achieve our aims. I will swear so on the high altar of Ulrich, and of any other god you nominate. The Graf relented a little. This city worships Our Lady Verena. We enjoy her special protection. She will not permit the foul adherents of the dark to succeed in their disgraceful arts within our walls. On her altar you must swear, along with that of your own fierce god. That I and my men will willingly do, said Ndruh the strong. The atmosphere relaxed. Peridure heard the distant striking of a clock. It's late. I must hurry. Whiteflower made a face, but did not stop him dashing up the steps to the academy. He reflected on the strange things they had witnessed. The life of adventure was forbidden, yet he did not regret seeing the strangers, and yearned to know the secrets of their mysterious quest. "'Brother Martin had finished the register when he rushed in. "'Where have you been, Peridieu? "'It is not like you to be late. "'There was a commotion in the town. "'Strangers. "'I thought for a minute there would be a battle "'right there in the market. "'Strangers. "'That's a strange excuse. "'No more of this.' "'It was tense at the Academy. "'The others were mostly from families without noble blood.' Children of merchants or other leading burgesses, they resented Peridio's status as nephew to the garrison commander, and felt he was over-privileged because of it. But they feared him, as one who trained with the squires. Some tried flattery, which was more annoying than hostility. They were a miserable lot, well suited to a future without action. During lunch, Brother Martin sought him out. So, You saw the mysterious ones. Let us put your escapade to some use. What kind of men were they? What can you learn from what you saw? Martin was about thirty, less bound by books than most of the clerics. He listened carefully to Peridier's description, then said, There are lands where men fear to reveal their names. They are nests of wizardry where the battles of lawful and unlawful magic are waged more fiercely than in this relatively tranquil city. Peridieu tried to digest this. You fear the barbarians may be plotting to deceive the Graf, using spells of illusion? Brother Martin shook his head. No, such spells have no power in the temple. But there are many ways to speak the truth. He looked down the colonnade and made a bow towards the owl of Verena, which watched over the entrance. One must be fair. Men who dwell outside the empire are not necessarily barbarians, nor always wicked by design. Yet in places where names are unsafe to utter, the worship of Ulric goes often hand in glove with that of Solkan the Avenger. Their followers are not corrupt, but can be unjust— a hard faith to reconcile with the worship of Our Lady. In Wurtbad there were large temples only to Verena, Ulrich, and Sigmar. If foreign cults had gained a toehold in the lower town, Peridieu was not deemed ready to learn of them, avoiding conflict over things more desperate than the exact meaning of ancient texts. Ellen had influence, being in charge of her brother's household, and Reinhardt was not treated as a mere freelance, having been married to Saskia's mother, the original white flower of Wertbad. The latter had been the Graf's favourite sister, the most beautiful woman ever to have lived in the city. Peridieu was taught about the empire, the centre of civilised life, and little of the lands beyond. Intrigued by what he had seen that day, he was bolden to ask his uncle at supper if the visitors had taken their oaths in a satisfactory manner. So it would seem. The clerics took precaution against illusion and didn't detect anything. Less convinced of Our Lady's protective power than most, Uncle Renhard never scoffed openly. It didn't look like perjurers in action to me. Peridier's mother had a different view. They must have used magic to enter the lower city, unless you hire men who sleep on sentry duty and leave the gates open. She glared at Renhardt, who seemed about to reply, but she hurried on. By all accounts, the adventurers are wild creatures, scarcely human. I am amazed they were not sent packing when they were under your guns. He replied mildly. They had a frightening look. "'It is merely a matter of dress and style. "'I examine them closely. "'They do not include any half-awks, or even dwarves. "'Perhaps. "'But you must at least keep the children away from them, "'and not let them attend this ghastly show.' "'Peridieu had heard about no show, "'and had no idea what to protest about. "'Whiteflower had, and was very indignant. "'I am not a child.' I am the Graf's niece, and I am not being told what not to attend. The show is to be a festival in honour of Ulrich, the White Wolf, who is neglected here in Wertbad. Ellen opened her mouth to scold White Flower, but Renhardt spoke rapidly for once. Although the visitors are guests here, they have invited us to attend this festival. It is the Equinox of Spring, sacred to Tal, as well as the White Wolf.' It would be discourteous for the family not to attend. Ellen spent the next days haranguing Peridure about the dangers posed by adventurers and the evil gods they must worship in secret. Each day he went straight to the academy as required, merely peering down the steps into the lower town on the way, trying to see he knew not what. In the event he saw nothing— Rumours were started by students whose fathers had sold the visitors' supplies or bought from them strange treasures. They reported that the strangers had constantly asked questions about the layout, history, and traditions of the city. After a few days, one whose father kept a tavern reported seeing the man Knuth standing drinks and asking about the tunnels and the ruins under the upper city about who had made them, and how they could be entered. That evening, Peridure and Whiteflower went again into those hidden passages. They saw nothing but ancient stones, murky shadows and dust. Yet in the distance, several times, they seemed to hear sounds, voices carried perhaps through air-holes, boots stepping heavily on rock, the clank of iron— and once or twice they noticed a peculiar smell, not unpleasant, but quite alien to the clammy world beneath the earth. Smoke, heavy with some rich oil and a hint of sandalwood, as though exotic lamps had guided someone's path through the underworld, then vanished through the old, unyielding walls. The spring equinox dawned. The parade in honour of Ulrich would be followed by a demonstration of martial skill and a dance in honour of Tal, lord of nature and wild places. His worship had faded in Wertbad, since it no longer had wildness, save the wildness of men. Ellen said it would be a violent, obscene performance, like the bull dances of decadent southern lands, no festival of true religion but she did not object when Reinhardt said they would be seated in the graf's box, in a house overlooking the market, with terraces of seats. The academy closed early, and Peridieu hurried over. It was still mid-afternoon, and few people had arrived. He ducked into a half-enclosed courtyard. It was shaded there, only the rear being open to the sky. One could get water from a fountain fed by a mineral spring. At first... He did not see the woman who was there, but it was more than surprise that made him start. Though he could not see her face at first, she had a grace and sad dignity he had never dreamed of. She turned sharply at the sound of his footfall, like a fallow deer starting when drinking at some secluded brook in the forest. Her uncannily beautiful face was unlike any he had seen, framed by slightly waving night-dark hair the bones exotic, delicate. Her complexion was bronze-tinted by the sun, though somehow pale also, as though the blood was afraid to linger. She wore a cloak which fell to her feet, fastened down the front with silver. It was of a very rich material, mostly blue in colour, but winter-dark, with white embroidered clouds and flecks of snow. "'lightened by tiny jewels like stars and a silver moon. "'He was too abashed to speak. "'Girls whose noble families kept them from the academy "'attended religious festivals, "'and he feared this court had been assigned to their secluded use. "'I beg your pardon, sir.' "'It was she who apologised, improbably, to him. "'I thought it would be allowable to use this fountain.' while I was waiting for the festival to begin. Her voice was very clear and carefully pronounced, without a trace of accent, as though her upbringing had been so refined that it was protected from any infection by the multitudinous brogues which rose clamouring from the alleys of the city. "'Of course it is. May I help you to drink?' He carefully washed and filled one of the cups which sat beside the spring. I do not believe we have met. Is this the first time you have attended the spring festival here? Here, yes. But I am familiar with all of the festival dances and customs. Oh. Tongue-tied, Peridieu racked his brain for something to say to this exquisite beauty. Uh, I have heard that the, uh, "'Dances performed at the festival are doubtful, dangerous stuff, Ra- "'rather like those performed in foreign places.' "'Oh, yes, I suppose you might have heard that. "'The festival is, of course, international. "'It takes place in all the lands where Great Ulric and Holy Tal are venerated, "'and there are similarities in the rituals and dances.' As for dangerous, yes, you could say that. But the gods protect their own. I I don't quite see what you mean. Not everyone chooses to participate in the rites. No, not everyone would choose to do that. But some are called, and that call, if it is powerful enough, may not be refused.' There was something infinitely distant in that perfect voice, something he did not understand and wished to hear no more. "'You are well informed, yet I have not seen you at the Academy. "'No, I have not visited the Academy. "'Most of my education has come from my family. "'But I would like to visit Verena's—' Devora. "'Come! "'A young woman!' in a loose dress of fine, pale blue material, appeared at the door, but did not enter. They looked, almost, to be twins, but the newcomer's hair was strikingly pale, like the light honey called bee's milk. The other smiled wanly at him, gave a little curtsey, turned, and left quickly. "'Who was that woman?' a sharp voice interrupted. He saw his mother had arrived, and thought it was she who had spoken— Then he realised Saskia Whiteflower was with her, in one of her angry moods. "'I don't know. She seemed well-bred. I suppose she is from a family which keeps its girls from the academy.' He offered this, realising he no longer believed it. "'Well,' his mother Ellen did not seem annoyed, "'you scholars can mix in the best circles. Remember that.' But Whiteflower was less impressed.' her bad mood persisted through the festival and worsened when the graf led the warriors of the city out on parade look all the squires but us it was a poor display nobles rode in fine but handed down armour which seldom fitted as their fathers had weighed less the squires were similar few would follow military careers renhart's men were the best war was their trade not their duty then the visitors, true men of Ulric, went through their paces. The manoeuvres lasted a long time, but few remembered the detail, perhaps because of what came after. It was nearly sundown, and the arena cleared of men. Two wooden towers were trundled forward, and a wire was tightened between them. While this was being done, Knuff the Stout spoke. "'Friends!' WE HAVE HONOURED Ulric, LORD OF WINTER. NOW WE WELCOME SPRING, IN THE NAME OF TAL, OF THE WILD PLACES. AT HIS WORDS, THE ASSEMBLY FELL SILENT. INTO THE ARENA CAME THE STRANGEST SIGHT, A HUGE BISON RIDDEN BY A MAN. THE BEAST WAS oddly COLOURED, BROWN TO THE SHOULDER WITH A WHITE MANE. IT EASILY BORE ITS RIDER DESPITE HIS SIZE. He had to be Ndru the Strong, though his face was covered by the mask of a white wolfskin from a beast he must have killed himself. Some of the audience fell to their knees, believing for an instant that Ulric had ridden the winter into the city and they could worship him. The sun lowered redly to the western hill. Kenneth announced Behold, winter ends, and Ulric quits the land. The warrior leapt from the bison's back, vaulted easily over the barrier. Now life returns to the world as the Dancer of Spring. "'What dancer is this?' Peridure whispered to Whiteflower. "'Look!' she hissed. "'Your noble little friend!' His blood quickened. A figure moved slowly but gracefully up the steps of the eastern tower, He knew the blue embroidered robe, the hair now garlanded with green. She paused before the taut wire, appearing calm, but he sensed a tremor of fear run through her. A trumpet sounded, strange music, and she threw her arms upward, her cloak back. It did not fall, but fanned out around her like a parasol. The assembly gasped. It was lined with silver mirrors, brightly reflecting the dying sun. Beneath, her arms and legs were bare, browned almost to the colour of her golden cuirass. The music rose, and she moved forward onto the wire, dancing along it, her delicate feet never missing a step. She pranced to the far tower, whirled the cloak up, tossed it onto the platform blue side up, so her golden body shone dominant over it. Light flashed onto the end of two batons she held, which burst into flame. As the crowd gasped, Peridure hoped the show was over, but it was not finished. And Drew stared at the bison, holding his hammer up. Its runes glowed with more than reflected light. The beast moved towards him. As it passed under the wire, the girl stepped easily into the air, landing with both feet on its back, sank almost to one knee, but stood upright in triumph, twirling her torches like juggler's clubs. She leaned forward and somehow attached the brands to the beast's great horns, then jumped off the tail, landing clean. The bison turned to look to the insult to its dignity. Instead of fleeing, she ran lightly to it and vaulted over its head, her golden armour flashing fire between the two torches as she somersaulted. How could any cult, Peridieu thought, allow so fair a girl to run such a risk, however well she took it? The bison angrily speeded up, trying to shake her off. Twice more she skipped nimbly down, turning to vault again between the flames. Their heat enraged the creature. She could not cope with its faster charge, or did intense sympathy transfer Peridia's fear to her, disrupt her concentration. That final time she slipped, fell heavily from the bison's back, lay still as it turned, then tried to scramble up as it thundered angrily at her. A moan of sympathy rose all round. Peridure jumped up, wild with terror, and made a futile grab for his short sword, as though he were near. No one could rush between her and the monster, but Andrew had other resources. Leaping onto the barrier, he swung his great hammer and threw it. The bison was almost on the struggling girl, but the hammer was faster, runes glowing on its fearsome head, It struck the animal between the eyes, smashing its skull and hurling it backwards on its haunches. Nor was this all. Runes glowing now on the mammoth shaft, it bounced into the air and flew back surely to its master's mighty hand, as though it were a dove or homing-bird." The squires who served at the evening feast all chattered about the magic weapon, the amazing rescue. Whiteflower and Peridure were included because of their better manners. They were, in fact, to serve the top table. Undrew sat next to the graf, then Renhart, Knuth, and the two beautiful maidens, Devora, the dancer, subdued by her ordeal, and Cotlaine, the light-haired one. These were the sisters of Andru. There were also notables of Vertbad present, including Brother Martin. Peridieu took care of Devora, giving her the best portions. He tried clumsily to express in words the beauty of the dance. She replied graciously but briefly. Time was short. The menu was complex, and the visitors had brought contributions. The first was a brown pepper from Achillesia, which Andrew warned might be too hot for their taste. Hardly anyone had much, just a dash for politeness. While the strangers swamped their food with the stuff, Martin also. He looked worried, not just hot. Devora ate little. Peridieu offered her other dishes. She seemed pleased, but wanted nothing. Andrew beckoned him. "'and said to the graf, "'Your hospitality is excellent, "'but I must ask if it is common among your for squires "'to make eyes at a guest's sister.' Peridier almost sank into the floor, "'and did his best not to fear this huge outlandish man, "'but it was hard, and he dared not upset the graf. "'Manfred at least invited him to defend himself.' "'I meant no offence. I wish to see the lady lacks nothing, as she has endured much more today than anyone else.' And Drew frowned, a barbarous figure who even wore his mail at table. "'Give equal care to all the guests. Our stock is inured to hardship and danger. My sister needs none of your fawning.' Peridure was isolated. The Graf would not defend a fatherless scholar, and his family, especially his mother, would frown on attention to a foreign adventuress. but he could not keep silent. Here we do not submit our women to the attentions of wild animals, and deny them those of civilized men. And Drew sat right up, and many feared him then. Men! "'Since when have boys who don't even parade with the squires been the men? "'If you hope to worm into my company via my sister, forget it. "'If you have other designs on her, why, I'd sooner see her marry a half-orc. "'Now get to pouring wine before I lose my patience.' "'One person supported Peridure readily. "'Whiteflower had been working quietly and busily.' For some reason she had hennered her hair and put so much rouge powder on her face, which was really quite pretty, that it looked like a doll's mask, though now it was redder still with rage. What do you know, you ignorant savage? Peretur mapavrouch is the best of all squires, the son of a great knight, a champion, but far too serious a scholar to join your band of tramps and gypsies. The room froze, and Drew seemed past words, like a bombard with a fire lit and creeping along the fuse. But Caneuf had seen the graf's arms on White Flower's gold brooch, and he cut in. "'Lord Count, please forgive my cousin his concern for Dvorah's honour. Our married women are always true, but while single they can be tempted.' I lost my own sister to an idle charlatan, a a wolf who blathered his way into our fold. This young man is no more eager to join our company than we to have him. It's all a misunderstanding. People started to relax. Even Andrew took the mood. That is so. And we have things to give and do. I have a present for you, my lord. Wine of Felerion, the best vintage. And even the squires drink it. It may make men of them. The wine was white, but with an odd bright hue like quicksilver. Peridier only pretended to drink. He wanted no gift from andrew. Nor did Whiteflower drink. And they noticed that Brother Martin's cup also remained full. Libations were poured to Tal and Ulric. Music was played. As the company drank deeper, and drew, made a request. Do you know Honorius? The riddle-song of the seals? In most cities they have verses which are not sung elsewhere. We would love to hear yours. My cousin, Canuth the Wise, knows many verses from many towns. Later he will play them all for you. Martin beckoned to Peridur and whispered, "'You are better away from here. "'Do not argue. "'I have a task for you. "'Here is the key to my study. "'Bring these books to the private shrine. "'The Book of Honorius, "'The Commentary of the Nangatius, "'and the Alchemicon. "'Go!' "'Peridieu hurried through the night of Vertbad, "'and saw men of Andrew's company "'plying the sentries with wine "'and wild hypnotic music.' It took ages to find the books, but at last he had them. When he reached the palace again, the same music was throbbing from the hall. He found Brother Martin and Saskia Whiteflower in the Graf's little shrine to Our Lady, who presided in the form of a life-size statue with her sword and scales. Whiteflower was pale beneath the powder. Do you think, Brother, they are trying to use enchantment? Not here. But they can hypnotize. Martin fumbled through the alchemicon. Alas, it's as I feared. The silver wine of Philarion. This wine is more potent than any other. A man who has drunk deeply of it shall succumb swiftly to hypnotic chants or mesmeric songs. Why didn't I recall more clearly? Protection can be got from herbs and seeds. Most notably. ''The brown pepper of Achillesia,'' he snatched the commentary. ''Here, scholars call the riddle song a a parable of the soul's path to perfection. But the old view has not been refuted, namely that the seals were real, sacred objects of great, magic power, not symbols, and the riddles refer to their location.'' Whiteflower was very excited. There was a mention in the Vertbad verse of the Lord's escape. How closely the savage and his man listened to that, and to the sealing of the stone. There's a passage below the cellars which the old lords used as an escape tunnel, with a picture on the wall of an elf queen placing a seal on a stone. Perhaps a clue to a hidden door. Martin read on. Some say the whole riddle song has a greater secret woven into it the way to an even older and more sacred item, the hammer of the stars. Its use cannot be attained without the mastery of the seven seals. It is protected by the mesmeric influence of the song. One cannot hear it and remember it all. He closed the great book. Alas, the dry scholars of the academy have long ignored the wise words of Ignatius, they ran to the great hall. Terror rose within them. Not a man was moving there. All the nobles of the city lay slumped in their seats, the guards and servants in like plight around them. They seemed not ill, but in more than a drunken stupor, a trance. Of Nandrew and his companions there was no sign, but the door to the cellars was open. Only three remained to defend the seal of Wertbad who had not drunk the silver wine. But they were unarmed. Peridur had a meagre store of weapons in Reinhardt's house. As he rushed in and rummaged for his light mail shirt, his mother hurried into the room. She had left the banquet early. What are you up to? I knew no good would come from you mixing and brawling with those mountebanks and making eyes at a gypsy woman. "'I have started nothing. "'They are our enemies. "'They have drugged the garrison "'and planned to rob us of the sacred seal.' "'Shaken, Ellen insisted. "'Our lady rewards holiness. "'She does not require such a material object "'to channel her protection.' "'Martin came in. "'He is right. Verena would not grant us her favour "'if we allowed so sacred a thing to be purloined. "'Stop complaining.' and hurry to Shalya's temple, where they may know a remedy from what has been done to our soldiers. Ellen went pale, looking about to faint, but her voice firmed. If this is so, you must swear by Our Lady that you put on armour in her cause, not in some quarrel over a dancing girl. Peridure took that oath as fast as permissible. His mother became decisive. "'Then I will give you the one bequest I have to pass down from your father.' "'She led the way to her own chamber, "'and used a small gold key to unlock a heavy box, "'the iron coat of Edvard Mpavroch. "'The greatest knight ever to live in this country. "'They say it has the property that no man who puts it on in a righteous cause "'can take a fatal wound.' The armour was of heavy plates, riveted together, sculpted so it could be put on quickly like a coat. There was a shield of similar design and a long sword. Whiteflower had already put Peridure's mail shirt over her dress and picked up a halberd. As Ellen hurried off, the three descended into the dark cellars. They traversed the gloomy way beside the ancient hall and slipped through the hidden door of the Lord's escape. Halfway down the stairway... White flower shone her lamp on an inlaid fresco. Look the elf queen seals an ancient stone to an arm ring, as in the riddle. How real her ringstone looks! I wonder she touched the jewel and once a door swung open beyond lay more steps, but these ran up. They were not quite dark. A faint and flickering light came from above. There were also voices, singing a strange chant that could not be called music, and again the scent of burning oil and sandalwood. I thought as much. Those foreigners were interpreting the riddle. Up they crept, quiet as they could. They came to an arch between more of the huge pillars. Perhaps there had once been a door. Now one could see into the chamber. Torches had been put in the brackets on the weirdly carved walls, where gargoyles, elven, they supposed, sought vainly to be ugly. The giant and Drew knelt before a black, ancient chest. The stocky Canuff held his staff across it, chanting words they did not understand. Behind the sisters, Devora replying to the chant, Cthulain silent. Suddenly the chest opened of its own accord, and Drew reached for something within, hesitated, then brought out a hinged armband of heavy gold. It had a number of jewels, glowing in strange colours as by their own light, but the centrepiece was a blade of obsidian like a stone spearhead, held to the band by a golden seal. A dawnstone, Martin breathed, Then he stormed forward. How dare you, guests in this city, try to steal its most holy treasure, its ward against the spirits of the night? And Drew stared at him. So, someone is awake in this slothful town. I dare what I dare, for a place like this can claim no ownership of so powerful a thing. You slumber cheerfully here, ignoring the world without where the empire of evil grows even stronger not surprising when flabby burghers of provincial places hoard selfishly things they cannot use or understand peredier was amazed did you not swear by the holy gods that whatever you think of us in our city you will not harm us yes i have sworn to do you good I have seen the face of evil in this world—dark lands where brutes beyond description swarm hideous out of the earth, and I have beheld that which can overcome them—that which is death to all unnatural things. Martin gasped. You mean the hammer of the stars? Yes, I have seen that, fashioned by the slan, those who were before men— "'who travelled lightly to the other world, "'but only, as yet, in visions. "'Those who guard it are like you, lazy in the crusade. "'They seek only its protection for themselves. "'But I shall see it with these eyes, "'will touch it myself, "'and with these hands will turn its head against the dark.' "'Martin was not appeased. "'That may be a laudable ambition.' but when you swore your oath in front of the city fathers you knew they would not agree with you therefore you have used deception and that is forbidden to a devotee of ulric he will not grant you his blessing now never allow you to benefit from the zone of safety which the dawnstone and its jewels provide still less attain the using of the hammer of the stars Had you not drunk deep yourself of the wine you gave our citizens, you would know this. And Drew snorted. Tell not initiates of the White Wolf what he will give. It is courage and will that grant access to these wondrous things. Those who lack them can never approach the hammer. Well may you blather to your own petty gods. He went on one knee. Holding the amulet above him as though an offering, Lord Ulric, grant me the power to wear this marvellous instrument of thy will. Let it guide me past all illusions and unworthy spells set against the righteous by those who have usurped the star hammer. Allow me to wield that holy weapon in the war against darkness and unnature. He opened the armband and very deliberately placed it round his wrist. Martin groaned, "'No!' as it snapped shut. And once there was a stirring of the air in the chamber, which grew into a wind like a god departing, howling like a wolf in pain. The torches guttered, went out. First there was total blackness, then a very faint light which grew slightly." It was the runes of Ndru's battle-hammer, and others glowed from Peridur's armour. A female voice spoke sharply, in a language Peridur did not know. A brighter light appeared, seeming to come from the hair of the woman Catalane. He wondered if it would be consumed or bleached even lighter. Martin spoke. "'See, sí, as I predicted!' Your drunken folly has deprived the amulet of its ability to disperse all charms. Surely, in all reason, you must now return it to us. And Drew shook his head. I shall to the high temple of Ulric. There, its power will be restored when winter comes again. Peridio was tiring of all this. Drawing his sword, he stepped forward. You've done enough damage. Return the amulet if you are wise. I'd love the chance to force you. The big man's reply was to snatch up the great hammer with a snarl and swing it without words. Peredur took the blow on his shield. It was a mighty one, but he was not hurt. Before Andrew could recover, Peredur slashed at his half-exposed neck. This did not wound him, but managed to shear through the badly fastened mail so a flap came loose. And Drew swung again, and this time dashed the shield right out of Peridieu's grasp. The blow was so great that the older man was for an instant off balance, at his opponent's mercy. Peridieu poised his sword to strike again. He looked down the blade and saw only the face of Devora. Her expression bore such agony that he knew he could never strike her brother down. He pulled his blow tried only for a wound to the arm, but did little damage there. Andrew knew nothing of this narrow escape, and resumed swinging blows as fast as they were heavy. Had he been more sober, he might surely have prevailed easily. Even so, he was dangerous. Handicapped and shieldless, Peridios skipped around the room, And Drew was much more experienced, and tried to corner him in the doorway, drive him down the steps. The big man laughed as he swung the hugest blow of all. Peridure could only duck. The hammer whistled over his head, and crashed into a great pillar. It had missed him by a hair's breadth. But that was the end for the ivory handle. Shattered into fragments, the rune still glowing— Peridur twisted away from the hammerhead, stumbling to the ground needlessly, for it shot back at its master, not gently, but with the force of a cannonball, striking drew on the breastplate with a mighty crash, and pitching him over onto his backside. Now they were both on the ground, voices began to clamour, but Whiteflower stepped forward with her halberd, deftly sliding the point against Ndru's throat. "'keeping out of his reach. "'An end to fighting! Verena dislikes it! "'Return the amulet!' "'And Drew was not finished. "'He snarled at her, slowly gathering himself up. "'She did not stir, and he pushed forward against her point, "'a contest of titanic wills. "'Neither would yield, a tiny drop of blood formed at the needle-tip, then the air was torn by a scream and devora collapsed in a faint and drew sagged back saying alas who would have thought i could fail thus i must return your seal lost though it is to the quest he shuffled back to the chest they followed and Peridieu found himself saying what makes you think only men of Ulric are worthy to seek the hammer of stars? Here are devotees of Verena, and I, for one, fancy seeking it out, trying my courage. And Ru, paused in amazement, hand on seal, starting to unclasp it. They froze. A tableau of unsatisfied adventurers. The voice of Cataline broke the silence. "'Colder than Devora's, distant, prophetic. "'Take heed. "'The route to what you seek is perilous and little known. "'Even the best find it a hard one, as we have seen. "'But that is not half, for the mighty thing is well guarded, "'and you will find that if you should reach the city of the Star Hammer,' you would regret that you went there.' She spoke to them all, to no man in particular, and Drew had been fumbling at the clasp of the Dawnstone amulet. Now it fell from his arm into its chest, which slammed shut. The light from the runes and the enchantment on the hair of Catalane vanished as suddenly." By the time Peridure, Whiteflower and Martin found their tinder in the dark, there was no trace of the visitors. It took them a longer while to repass the secret door. It was a time of false dawn before they reached the upper city, and found the strangers had vanished from there too, as suddenly as they had arrived. You may think Peridure returned cheerfully to the dull academy. Not so though he had a greater purpose to his learning now. Peridieu had not meant to make an idle boast when he had said that he would seek the sacred hammer. The three would be ready for that quest one day soon. What a bad story! There are quite a lot of articles and blogs floating around on the internet that do reviews of the Wolf Riders anthology, as well as a retrospective that appeared in the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay fanzine Warpstone, and this one doesn't do very well in the eyes of reviewers. Criticism is usually either that the story itself is not very well put together, lacking in incident or or that the story barely qualifies as an actual Warhammer story at all, and could be a piece of generic fantasy writing inserted into the collection. I would say that it is quite possible that it is both, although for the purposes of this podcast, I think a lengthier discussion of why it feels so unWarhammerlike like is probably most interesting, as it allows us to pause for a moment and think about what Warhammer actually is as a setting, and why it is so unreceptive to stories developed for a a could-be-a-number-of-fantasy-world setting. As we have said, the story is probably quite bad before we think about the setting itself. It unfolds with the protagonists having very little agency, really, uh, taking few decisions that are particularly clever, or even that explain why they end up as the saviours of the city. The villains, if they can be referred to as such, aren't particularly compelling, and the characterization and relationships between the characters are either thin or clichéd. The story ends with the characters realising that they have an epic quest before them, but the story has done nothing to make you feel that the quest, and its titular MacGuffin, are in any way urgently required. Wouldn't it be cool if we found the magic hammer? I guess. I mean, I suppose we need it. Who doesn't need a magic hammer if one's going? Uh, But there's zero sense of it. This is a world in which society is actually threatened by forces that you could actually use a magic hammer on. Indeed, the main problem for the characters in this setting is that there are people that want a magic hammer, not that there are pressing targets to use one on. If I've said this is a bad story, and then at the end it turns out to be a brilliant satirical critique of the arms industry, I'll be so annoyed. The other thing I suppose I found funny about the choices in this story is that it presents an interesting take on a protagonist dealing with the choice between intellect or strength. It is a cliché to have a character living in a martial culture who is weaker than those around him, but then is required to use his wits and intelligence to survive. I suppose it's there in stories of Loki or Odysseus, down to Terry Pratchett or How to Train Your Dragon, and the innumerable points in between. This story raises the interesting question of what if there was a guy who gets forced to go and train to be an intellectual, but is in actual fact super good at beating people up, so everyone's afraid of him, and also he's from the highest status family in the city. I think the fact that he's the son of a talented knight who has been made to go to university when he should be practising stabbing people, has some potential. It would be funny to have a story where the central character, who finds academic education really difficult, but then learns that reading books and lateral thinking won't help anybody, unlike what everyone around him says, and who manages to save the day by pushing people over and hitting them. A sort of Conan-style origin story, where he realises that thinking is for dummies, and clubbing people to death is where it's at. That would be quite good. But, as far as I can make out, Peridio is also quite clever, so he's just a perfectly competent starting character in all respects, whose flaw is that he wants to make use of his natural abilities and that he gets slightly horny if he meets one of the most beautiful women he has ever met in his life. Similarly, Saskia Wildflower gives us a pretty unimaginative tomboy character, complaining about sexism but also being functionally immune to any of the social pressures she describes in practice. They both feel like RPG characters that have rolled slightly too high at character generation and are consequently smashing their way through the introductory scenario, although it's also partially because they solved the GM's puzzle of Do you drink the wine that the really suspicious guys have brought to the party and are pressuring everyone to drink? Let us now turn to why this doesn't feel like a Warhammer story. We know that there was a bit of contempt towards Warhammer in the UK fantasy writers' community, so my initial instinct was that Pete Garrett thought that Warhammer was stupid and tried to ignore the setting precepts as much as he could. However. Garrett was brought in by Interzone magazine to review the second wave of Warhammer fiction in 1990, and the reviews show that he has a good sense of what makes the setting attractive, although he also correctly, in my opinion at least, identifies the dark future stories as perhaps being the most interesting. So we can discount the idea that he is doing a deliberate hatchet job on the old world. What is it, then, that he gets so wrong? Firstly, I think he misreads the place of magic and magical items in this world. The upper part of Vertbad is under a shield of protection, like the second Death Star, with the Temple of Verenna acting like the moon of Endor generating it. His mum has a suit of magic armour in a drawer for him. The guy who wants the magic hammer has already got a hammer that is, by all accounts, pretty effing magic to begin with. It doesn't feel like the low-fantasy world of grim and perilous adventure of this era's Warhammer. Secondly, it has no sense of what the threats are in this world. Essentially, the Empire in this period of writing faces external threats from orcs—as we have said before, not always the most well-developed of antagonists—and Chaos, very well documented, its portrayal being the most unique thing about the setting one could contend and this story places the problem that the Empire faces somewhere between the two as being evil, so you end up with, as I have said, no real sense of what the hammer is for. Even the idea of the antagonists being sulcanites, with an interesting potential discussion of how the lawful cure could be as bad as the chaotic disease, gets mooted and then dropped. Thirdly, I think it doesn't have a very good sense of class in the way that almost all the good Warhammer stories in these collections do. Both Jack Yeovil and William King acknowledge the empire as being a world of class resentments, where the stratification of society has negative impacts on those on lower rungs. Their settings feel often like a mix of 18th century and 19th century street protest and 16th and 17th century wars of religion and a rising urban middle class. This setting is one that feels much more feudal in its outlook, and the story is told from, essentially, the top rung of that strata, with little sense that the burghers who send their sons to the academy have any right to resent the knightly class to which Peridier belongs. I say this not because I want to be reminded of class conflict at every turn in my Warhammer stories, but because stories set within such societies provide tensions that add character and stakes. Think of King's Geheimnisnacht and how it is partly about fighting mutants, and partly about Felix dealing with his past as a political agitator. Most fundamentally, however, the story has no sense of place. In terms of religion, we have absolutely no sense of the cults as being tied to locations in the setting. Ulrich appears to be a near-universal god whose worship is found far beyond the empire, and, to my mind, That unmoors it from most of the interesting things about it, as a rival cult to Sigmar in the Empire. I strongly suspect that this book was written after reading the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay core book, and then nothing else. There's certainly no sense of Ulrich as the Catholicism to Sigmar's Protestantism that emerges in the Enemy Within campaign. Far worse than this is that the group of travellers, the antagonists and the focus of an awful lot of the descriptive word count of the story, are from absolutely nowhere. This is absolutely a setting where people are suspicious of foreigners, but the whole joke of Warhammer is that those mysterious foreigners should be based around analogies for maps of our own world. If the Warhammer setting had a central premise, it's that you look at something and go, oh, I get it, like French people do. But the veiled travelling acrobat troupe concept with wines and spices from places that get no mention anywhere else in the setting, wines of Filarion and what have you, give it this sort of vaguely orientalizing, misty otherness of a Robert E. Howard story that feels here somehow deeply wrong. What did I like about it? It's got a good drawing in it by John Ridgway that feels like good fighting fantasy art, even though... I don't think John Ridgway did any fighting fantasy art. And it's funny that the leaders of the troop have got exotic names with apostrophes in them, but when you say them out loud, they are called Andrew and Kenneth. Please feel free to comment on the show in the post in the Old Hammer or Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition Facebook groups, or to leave a review if you are so inclined. Please tell friends if this is the type of thing that might interest them. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I post at, at Lewis Kerno about, well, history, this podcast, RPGs, miniatures, and Turnip28. Next time, we are going into space to hallucinate as we pass through warp gates and take crazy space drugs with Deathwing's Lacrimata.